I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. I grew up in Chicago, decades after the death and funeral of fellow Chicagoan Emmett Till in 1955, but his tragic story still lingered. It's the story of a 14-year-old Black boy who left home excited to spend the summer with his family down south and came back to Chicago months later in a casket, his body beaten beyond recognition. It's the story of a teenager who was killed because he whistled at a white woman and her family thought that merited revenge. It's the story of a mother who opted for an open casket funeral so people could see what white attackers did to her son. I was forced to deal with this face. I saw that his tongue was choked out. The right eye was lying on midway his cheek. His nose had been broken like somebody took a meat chopper and chopped his nose in several places. As I kept looking, I saw a hole, which I presumed was a bullet hole. And I wondered, was it necessary to shoot it? Mr. Rayner asked me, he said, uh, do you want me to touch the body up? I said, no, Mr. Rayner, let the people see what I've seen. Emmett Till's lynching on August 28, 1955, spurred the civil rights movement and inspired action from activists like Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr. A lot has changed in the realm of racial justice over the 65 years since. But as far as Emmett Till's case goes, still no one has been convicted, no one has been sentenced, and his story still awaits an ending. We're talking about Emmett Till today because it's the anniversary of his death at the tail end of a summer that's been dominated by conversations about white supremacy in the United States. Those two are inextricably tied. A lot of times at these protests across the country, you hear people invoke Emmett Till's name as the first in a long list of Black boys and girls for whom they're seeking justice. Here's Letitra Weidman, the sister of Jacob Blake, a Black man who police shot seven times in Wisconsin on Sunday. He's now partially paralyzed. So many people have reached out to me telling me they're sorry that this happened to my family. Well, don't be sorry, because this has been happening to my family for a long time. It happened to Emmett Till. Mm. Emmett Till is my family. Philando, Mike Brown, mm. Sandra. This has been happening to my family. And I've shared tears for every single one of these people that it's happened to. We wanted to know what Emmett Till's family thinks of today's anti-racism movement and how their personal search for justice is going. And so it was clear who we should call. I'm Deborah Watts, cousin of Emmett Till and the Emmett Till Legacy Foundation co-founder. When people try to imagine Emmett Till, often it might be the image of his brutalized face that comes to mind. But Deborah has a different sketch of Emmett in her house. I saw it in the background of our Zoom call. Can you tell me about the picture behind your shoulder? It was like a sketch of your cousin. 
Yes, that was a drawing done by a young man in our community. And it is an iconic picture of Emmett during his heyday. And, you know, he was a, a wonderful dresser. His mother took great pride in his looks. And so did he. And rightfully so. He had a lot of swag. Mm-hmm. And I think that picture captures it with the hat, with the tie, and just dressed so nicely. That's what I want to remember about him, his dreams, his hopes. That's what that picture represents. I want to go back to 1955. I know you were just a toddler at the time, but what, if anything, do you remember about the circumstances surrounding your cousin's death? And how did it affect you and your family throughout your life? Yes, that's a great question. I remember when Mamie Till Mobley, Emmett's mother, traveled to Omaha, Nebraska, which is where I lived, to speak about the atrocities that happened, also what was happening around the country. I want you all to support this wonderful organization because they alone can get laws on the books that will stop this thing that has been happening. And unless we can get enforceable laws, we might as well just forget everything. Our family, over the years, saw and witnessed Mamie speaking out, pushing for justice for Emmett, appearing at rallies on her 47-year journey to seek justice for Emmett Till. So we were always rooting for her, rooting for justice, awe of her courage, her strength, and her determination. Emmett Till's story has had some twists and turns over the past 65 years. For decades after his death, his family and their allies urged prosecutors to convict the two men who lynched him. Carolyn Bryant testified at her husband's murder trial that Emmett had whistled at her and threatened sexual assault. Her husband was quickly acquitted. In 2017, a book came out that quoted Carolyn Bryant, admitting that her testimony was a lie, that Emmett did whistle at her, but never made sexual advances. But in another twist, Bryant has since denied admitting that. The whole thing compelled the FBI to revisit the investigation into Emmett's killing. But three years later, there's still no verdict. I asked Deborah how she feels about that. We believe that it is important that Geraldine is held accountable for her role in Emmett's kidnapping and murder because uh, someone had to identify Emmett, and we believe that was Carolyn Bryant. Also, we strongly believe that she needs to be charged with murder, whether it's an accomplice, whether it's culpable negligence, whatever area, but we think the law should not bypass this opportunity. We think the legal system has, justice has been denied, and Carolyn Bryant had a warrant for her arrest, but it was never served. So we think we could push that clock back and do the right thing, serve the warrant, bring her in, charge her with murder, and then move forward through the legal process. 65 years is a long time to be waiting. So we're going to need everyone to help push this forward. So August 28th is the anniversary of Emmett Till's death, but it is also the anniversary of the March on Washington. Now, for our international listeners, this was a protest rally of about 250,000 people in 1963. It's where Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. It was really this national 
moment. What do you remember about that time? Well, the March on Washington, of course, from a historical perspective, that date, the organizers, from my understanding, chose that date because of Emmett's uh, murder and because of the galvanizing of people across the country and in the world to stand up against the kind of racist actions that were taking place, laws that were blocking African-Americans from participating in our democracy. That was a time of people being proud to exercise their voice, not fearing the kind of retaliation that was received back in 1955, but finding strength in numbers, finding strength in using media as a way to amplify our voice. That's what happened with Emmett Till as well, the NAACP. That's one of the oldest civil rights organizations in the U.S. Used that opportunity to talk about the atrocities, some of the labor laws and rules that needed to be changed and where our people were in terms of their ability to vote. And so we are happy to join in solidarity with anyone that is uh, recognizing that day, but we ask them also to connect Emmett's death to it because it is a significant part of history that needs to be connected. Can't lose sight of of the significance. So you mentioned the, the NAACP. They have planned a virtual march on Washington on the anniversary this year. How do you think the current fight for justice and equality compares to the civil rights movement of the 1960s? I think there's a lot of comparisons and just the need to continue. We have to identify the things that continue to be demanded. The same outcry of jobs, our humanity, racism, violence, police brutality, the other stolen lives, even before Emmett, but uh, from Emmett till and forward with Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Orlando Castile, and others. So these are unfortunate examples that Black lives perhaps don't matter to everyone in the United States, and they should. And so the march is important. What we're doing to memorialize Emmett is important as well, because that's part of our past. Connecting it to the present is important. I think that's what the march represents. And I think that's powerful. It was powerful then, and it's going to be powerful today and in the future. Recently, over the past few months, I have noticed this increased push. Seeing Emmett Till's name on my timeline, people pushing the Legacy Foundation, pushing the fact that his story still resonates today. But do you ever hear from people who are surprised that the person who was at the center of this, who accused Emmett, is still alive and that this story does not actually have an ending yet? Yes. (laughs) You know, we are sometimes living in a vacuum and think that everybody understands that when we mention the name Emmett Till that they understand. But I have to recognize that not everyone understands or is knowledgeable. And so what we found on social media, people are thanking us for amplifying the story, for sharing the story. We have some of our celebrities that are helping us push it out there and they're reaching audiences that we never could reach. And they are acknowledging that this is the first time they've heard about it. 
I think people are appreciative that we're sharing that they can connect that photo first, the beautiful picture in it as a young teenager, and then compare it and see the contrast of what hate looks like with the picture of his remains that his mother allowed to be taken. And I really hate talking about it, but it, it just, I get a vision of it and it just shifts my thinking sometimes in my spirit. But, you know, the inspiration, the kind of boy that he was, his life, the legacy, his dreams and hopes, the unfortunate kidnapping and murder, that's part of the story as well. And then this continuous fight for justice. And we didn't know that people didn't know it. The next generation is counting on us to get this right. And I owe it to the Till generation to get it right as well. And that's The Take. If you like what you heard, let us know. Or if you have an idea for another story we should cover, reach out on Twitter or Instagram at AJTheTake. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilve and Natalia Aldana, who is also the team's engagement producer, with Dina Kispe, Abigail Oniwohacha, Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is The Take sound designer. Stacey Samuel is the executive producer, and Graylin Pushir is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.